I could claim that I'm an activist in my heart, you know, and that I'm with the Indigenous Australians. But my actions, I'm 56 now, my actions are not showing it. You know. So I've only really got, I'm either, you know, I've only got two choices. Um, either do something or don't claim to be a saint. You know, that's where I sit. Uh, probably the only thing I'm doing that's even slightly virtuous is at least investigating the issue via this podcast, you know. At least I'm investigating it so that, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not blind to uh, the fact that I've got lucky and that I'm riding the luck, you know. Um, you know, I'm not denying that I got lucky. You know, I'm not denying that um, racism and colonialism hasn't benefited me and that it hasn't given me white privilege. Probably the only virtuous thing I'm doing, and I claim no saintliness out of this, um, is that I'm not lying to myself. You know, uh, I've got my eyes wide open. But at the same time, the the facts just show that my focus is on my wife and children and you know family first and i have parked any thought of doing anything for anyone else really in any practical sense for the, at least the next what 12 or 13 or 14 years until my youngest reaches um 18, you know, and even then, you know, I'll probably have grandchildren, they'll be my focus. I'm probably not going to do anything for anyone but my own people for the rest of my life at this rate. Um, but I think, you know, as bad as that sounds, I think a lot of people are like that. Um, and I just choose not to be a hypocrite about it. Uh, having said that, there are some real saints out there that um, do look after their families and manage to do good things for others as well, you know, fix things, especially politicians. There's a lot of good politicians out there that are giving their lives, you know, um, in social, in uh, public service. They are public servants. Not all politicians are bad. You know, some of those guys are saints. And there are there is a whole other type of saints that just dumps their family and does good for the world, um, you know, I'm sure you could think of examples of that in history. There are saints in history who, um, on the world stage, have been wonderful. You know, and you find out 30 years later that their kids say that um, their parents, you know, their parent ignored them. You know, whilst they were making grand speeches at the UN. <laughs> yeah. So there's all sorts, you know. But I think you've got me pegged. You know where I'm coming from, and. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if you don't like me, all right? But, you know, what can I do? Lie? You know, I'll either change. You know, at least I'm telling the truth, I guess. At least I'm telling the truth, I think. Okay, that's it for now. I'll think of another angle out of what I was saying before soon. Off to work I go again. And uh, you 
can probably hear the engine noise of my car as I drive around and as you can probably tell I've got a 1971 Phase 4 GTHO XY Falcon. You can just hear that note, can't you? Right, just kidding. Yeah, it's a Ferrari. Um, now, um, so that's two sections of this podcast completed. Um, and the inspiration for the first part of the podcast was a meme put up by my GD, my goddaughter. Okay, and the second part of the podcast, which I just completed, just now, uh, was inspired by, well, a friend, you know, AB. Um, and, um, and the next part of the podcast is going to be inspired by my GM, my godmother. And uh, because she was chatting to me yesterday, gave me a ring um, on her way through central Victoria. Uh, she drives a lot, you know. My godmother, she, well, she, she's a world traveler too. Um, lives between Italy and Australia, but she's, you know, she's got family all over the world. All right, who are my cousins? Right, now, um, next. Oh yes, by GM. And then the fourth part of the podcast, so this podcast, no, this episode, I always get mixed up. This episode is made up of four parts. Four quarters, and it's half time. Right, um, so, uh, Captain W.E. Johns inspires me for the last part, the fourth quarter. But we're in the premiership quarter right now with my GM. Okay. And um, my GM was chatting to me yesterday and it gave me a few new angles, um, a few new angles about Indigenous Australia that I hadn't really thought of before. And it was around ownership of land, you know. And in the way I speak with people, you know, you can never tell where these ideas come from. They drop out of chat. Yeah, I really think a great way to um, get at things is to just chat. And uh, I think if you know European Australia and Indigenous Australia wanted to get along even better, they wouldn't try and make policies and all that sort of thing. You know, we're always. Do you know what we do? We Westerners. We try and simplify things, you know. We need, we like to get things organised in our minds so that complex things have become simple. And there's there's a rationale for that. You know, that works really well in some spheres. Um, it works really well when it comes to laws, you know, like um, if you've got laws about the fence between you and your neighbour and, it, and it's all written down and simplified as much as possible, that can save a lot of anxiety. Because, you know, the law is often about two people who are both good people who genuinely feel aggrieved about the other person. Um, and they're both good people. You know, that's what the law is about. It's not about, you know, can we all... We should just all love each other more. It's about two genuinely good people um, who... Uh, 
have a difference of opinion about what is genuinely correct, you know. Um, people say, if only the world could love each other more. Does that make sense, grammatically? You know, if everyone in the world could just love each other more, the world would be a better place. But no, it wouldn't fix that fencing dispute just there, you know. And, um, and it wouldn't fix a million other disputes much bigger than a fencing dispute reaching a geopolitical sort of fever pitch it wouldn't fix that you know you can say if, if we all loved each other you know the South China Sea for example you know the dispute over that you know China absolutely and passionately believes South China Sea is hers or his or his you know, carefully pronounce right passionately and you know and religiously and honestly and everything you know and we all think no China has to share you know um, but how is that dispute going to be resolved by loving each other I don't think so all right so you know um, and that's that but we Westerners we like to try and distill everything and make sense of it like we do in science and politi and uh, sorry, laws, you know. We have a way of being scientific about everything. And in terms of, um, you know, we want answers as to what the answer is going forward. We like to say the words going forward these days, you know. Um, as if you're going to make plans about things going backwards. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, so, but... With respect to indigenous culture, or to any two cultures really, you know, often if you just get to know each other, I'm sure that would go a long way towards sorting things out, and and not looking for answers either, you know. So um, it won't fix everything. Nothing will fix everything. Loving each other won't fix everything, and my solution here won't fix everything, you know. But I often think that, actually I'm really into the chat. If you can tell from this podcast, um, I, you know, I feel that you need to chat for hours and hours, and for so long that no one will even listen, to get the nuance right on what you're trying to say, you know. And if this was a dialectic instead of a monolectic, and I don't know if that's a word monolectic, but you know what I mean. But if this was me and another person just having a long, long chat on the porch, like we used to in the old-fashioned days, about the world, about everything, and just chatting, and sometimes having, you know, moments of silence and having a beer, you know. I'm a teetotaler, but, you know. Um, but if, if, if... I think... You kind of get, and even in the silent periods, you start to get an understanding of each other a little bit better. So, my current theory is, number one, that I should keep doing long, long podcasts that nobody will hear because everyone wants, you know, 20... Mike Duncan podcast I really liked. Every episode, 20 minutes, you know, maybe 25. But he kept it tight and he did a lot of research and... Um, you know, and that was very scientific, and it was a great listen, you know. Um, but I'm not going to do that, you know. 
Um, I did, I'm glad he did do that because I like it. Mm. Because I'm a Westerner. Um, all right, so just the humble chat. You know, if Australians, uh, European Australians, got together with Indigenous people and just chatted more and put, a, put aside the idea of just trying to find answers to everything and just get to know each other a bit better. Look, there's a lot of Westerners who uh, get along great with um, European, no, Indigenous Australians, and a hell of a lot of Indigenous Australians are, you know, just as much European as they are Indigenous. They're genuinely Indigenous. You know, a lot of people have struggle with this, but you can be two things at one and the same time, 100%, you know. Um, so my children are Greek, you know. My children are Irish, right. But when they're Greek, they're 100% Greek, you know. When I'm talking to them, I say, hey, you're descended from the Greeks, you're Greek, you know. And, you know, sometimes on other occasions, I say, hey, you're Irish, you know. 100% descended from the Irish. And other times I say, you're English, you know. Like when the Queen comes on, I say, you're English, you know. That's your Queen, you know. Um, you, you know, you've got you know, you've got ancient cultures, I tell my kids. Do you know there's some people in the world that would tell my kids that they're, they've got a young culture. They haven't got any culture anymore, you know. Well, stack up Greece, Ireland and England, you know. <laughs> and they've got the freshness of Australia and the brutality of Australia too. And the brutality of all those other places too, you know. But some people say, you've got a young culture, you know. I can imagine someone coming from, you know, pick a country at random, you know, Botswana. And um, my kids make friends with a kid from Botswana at school. And he comes up to my kids and say, you know, the problem with you Australians, you know, because um, European type Australians are uh, called Australians a lot. You know? And not just by European Australians, but by others, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, you have to get to know our language. Um, and they might, the Botswana guy might say, listen, my culture goes back thousands of years and, you know, you're only 100 and, what are you, 119 years old. At best, you're only 200 years old, you know. You're a young culture, you know. And uh, the way I teach my kids is they're going to be very good at smacking that guy down and say, sorry, Greece is a young culture, England is a young culture, and Ireland? Come on, you know. Hmm that sort of thing um okay so the chat you know and um so the next part is inspired by my gm and she was talking about ownership of land now we westerners um ownership we like to just like that fence in fact it's all about that fence isn't it it's all about fences with us it's all about fences, you know. It's all about, um, and um, that's just a lucky, a lucky connection, you know. I didn't mean that. Um, so we have a lot of fencing laws. We that's that's what we mean by ownership: fencing laws or boundary laws, you know. And th this is to do with land, you know, ownership of land. But um, I get the feeling that Indigenous people had a less well we all know already don't we it was nothing like that with indigenous people nothing like that at all um and you can't even compare you can't even compare all right so 
Um, there was more of an attachment to land. I'm not even going to get into that. I've chatted about that a lot already in other episodes. All right. But if I, you know, and this is a sort of idea I sort of started to form in my head as I was talking to my GM. Um, I don't think ownership, you know, like we're talking apples and oranges all the time when we're speaking with Indigenous people. Sorry, I've got something rattling in my GTHO here. Um, right, I got rid of that. Um, ownership, you know, possession, possession, you know. We want to possess a, a, you know, half an acre, a quarter of an acre, you know, which is what most of us have got in Australia. We used to have, you know, the Australian dream was a quarter acre block, you know. So, and that's sort of the humble ish situation, you know, that my family's got the quarter acre block, you know, with the hills hoist, you know, we've actually got a hill hoist in our backyard, you know, um, we've got the same sort of backyard that we had when we were kids, you know, we're in the 21st century, that's going to be a dying dream, that's going away, you know, because population, hey, we must do an episode on population one day, hmm, but the Australian dream, that is a word, that is a phrase, um, means European Australian. Don't get your knickers in a knot. We know there's an Indigenous Australian. I keep having to say that because people do get their knickers in quite a knot. Right. Um, the Australian dream, the Australian dream, it was, is, you know, has always been to have the quarter acre block. I think that's dead. Um, that's dead because we have a new dream now and that is to populate heavily and just do the maths. Um, if you're going to populate heavily, you're going to have to go up. You know, it's an infrastructure thing. You know. um, you're going to have to go up, and you know everybody's going to have to live on top of each other in boxes. You know, kids are not going to have a backyard like my kids are going to have in the future. You know, I hope my kids, I hope my grandkids do. Uh, but you know, odds on, my kids, you know, in 30 years' time, are going to be living in apartments. Um, with, you know, maybe this token little um, thing, you know, that's just got a, out the back that's got a, <laughs> a, um, a, a sort of one and a half metre square patch of grass. But the Australian dream will die. We'll do a whole episode on that because that's a, that's a ripper because there's been Australian dream after Australian dream after Australian dream and it morphs. It morphs, you know. Um, the Australian dream used to be an indigenous Australian dream before European Australia came along. And that was a dreaming. Uh, yeah, all right. Yeah, a bit <laughs> corny. But it was. It was a dreaming and um, in which, you know, you could... There were no borders. You know, there were... Uh, you know, there were borders in as much as there were zones that were one nation and then another nation, and then another nation, you know. So there was that sort of border, but it wasn't the same feel um, as people having their, each person having their own square plot of land, you know, yeah. um, their own quarter acre block. It wasn't like that, okay? And everyone knows that. I'm drinking a coffee too, by the way, if you're wondering. Okay, hmm, so my GM, um, she was noting, and I didn't get to the bottom of it because, you know, she, uh, we were speaking on my lunch break at work, 
um, she was chatting about you know, what you might call the socialist elements, the socialist spirit of Indigenous Australia. I thought that was very interesting. I, you know, I hadn't thought of Indigenous Australia in socialist terms before. Um, socialist, maybe even communist, right. Socialist is um, where the um, where the government, let's say, uh, owns ev wealth, owns wealth. Look, it's you know, and the other one is where the people own the wealth. That's um, hang on, communism is when the government. No, communism is when the uh, people own the wealth, and you know, there's no motivation to work then because it's all shared equally. Um, all the people own the wealth equally, and the other one is you know, socialism. If I've got this around the right way, socialism is sort of when the government owns the wealth, but then pays for all the services. You know, and, and both tend to you know, drop everyone into poverty in the Western style, you know, experience anyway. Now, this is interesting. To what extent is Indigenous Australia like that? And my GM was saying it's not quite the same as socialism. It's a, it's a, and she was saying that to me. But she says, you know, it's good, it's good food for thought. She, I think she was basically saying. Um, but she was very carefully steering me away because she was explaining what she was saying without using the word socialism and communism. And I was trying to butt in and say, I mean, that sounds like socialism, you know? And she says, mm, I don't like to use that word, you know? I don't want to paraphrase my GM. She, she speaks with nuance as well, you know? She says, it's not quite that. And, you know, and since she's got off the phone, I, I, I know what she's mean, she means because I think I do anyway, because she's saying, yeah, it's not wealth in the way we understand wealth, you know? Um, it's more culture, you know. It's not possessing things per se, you know. Um, yeah, uh, a warrior might possess his spear, I guess, but you know, maybe they shared around their spears as well. I don't know. Okay, so yeah, we have to kind of really break free, very free from our Western style thinking to try and even start to approach the way. Um, Indigenous politics was. Well, that's the first angle. Uh, my GM was um, saying, you know, just just giving me ideas about Indigenous Australia from her perspective, and um, and I was trying to box that up as some sort of socialism. But you know, I think I need to unbox that again uh, now, and yeah, keep it loose and and not try and tie it down. Remember what I said about Westerners. Westerners try and define everything. You know, to get it neat, you know, I'm, I'm from a public service background, you know, um, and uh, I would typically try and distill complex ideas into a policy, you know, that's how I used to, we used to write policies, you know, um, I just do software now, but, but, you know, back in the old days, you know, if we had a complex idea, we would try and distill it into policy, you know, so that it was neat beautifully written um, in a non-poetic style um, uh, and um, where the dot where we could dot point exactly what's going on we wanted to define it um, but I'm going to leave this one undefined because I'm not in the public service anymore per se um, so we don't need a policy on this let's keep let's keep it loose and not try and tie it down okay 
that was the first thing um, idea that the, that my godmother gave me um, was you know how do we categorize um, indigenous Australia using Western language and I'm feeling that we can't you know I, f I felt that I got close with the socialism idea um, but I don't think even that cuts it okay so what I'm going to do is leave it loose all right so that's that now there was another idea that sprang to my sprang to mind um, with uh, from what my GM was talking to me about and it is it is more about ownership specifically and she was chatting away and then I started to form in my mind the idea that ownership is you know if we wanted to try and understand um, if I, I was on the back porch with an indigenous guy and we were trying to compare our respective attitudes towards the land we'd be speaking French and Russian you know we uh, the two of us couldn't understand each other you know okay so we haven't got a language for that the word ownership doesn't work you know ownership doesn't work so if we're going to use the this is what was forming in my mind if, if we if I'm going to try and have a chat to my indigenous friend I haven't got any indigenous friends by the way you know much as I said before that we should you know the, the Australia would be a better place if indigenous Australians and European Australians could just just sit down and chat together you know that, that would make the place a better place I have never done that with an Indigenous person because I really don't know any Indigenous people. I used to work with some Indigenous people years ago, but that was a consultancy and they were paying me. So that's different, you know. Um, I didn't sit down and chat with them. Um, hmm. Now, much as I, you know, gave this idea that we should sit and, you know, we'd be a better place if we just sat and chat, I have never done that with an indigenous person. You can call me a hypocrite there if you like. No, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> I'm gonna say you're wrong on this occasion. I'm not a hypocrite, you know. I'm heavily self-critical, you know. Um, now even in the chat about, uh, what was the, what was I chatting about with A, you know, about AB before, you know, where I was saying, hey, AB, are you just like me really? You know, if in your own way, you know, you might say, oh, that you're being a bit of a, you know, you're just trying to find excuses to excuse your bad behaviour by trying to claim everyone as bad, is as bad as you. And again, I'll say, no, I'm not. You know, look, if you want to, you know, you can believe anything you want and I can believe anything I want. But, um, no, <laughs> I wasn't doing that at all with AB. I was emptying my head. You know, that's all I was doing, emptying my head, stream of consciousness, um, not trying to defend myself or make a point or, you know, change the way you think and all that sort of stuff. You know, that's, these podcasts are not about that. I've said that a hundred times. Okay. It's actually about 102. Right. Now, um, so yes, yes, I, I, I wasn't, you know, I'm not seeking to educate. I'm just seeking to empty my head. And you make of it what you will. I'm not apologising for anything. I'm an asshole. Uh, I was trying not to swear in these podcasts, but there you go. But it needs to be put in strong language because I am. I'm a bastard. <laughs> and 
and I'm not trying to run away from that. I've got white privilege and I'm probably racist as well. Racist. Um, I'm actually a progressive. I'm a racist. I'm both. Right. I've discussed all that in previous episodes, but it needs to be repeated sometimes. Okay. Ownership. So if I'm sitting on a porch with my indigenous friend, um, my very first indigenous friend, you know, maybe I'll meet an indigenous guy once, one day, and I'll make friends with him. Or her. You know. Or it. You know. Carefully your pronouns. Right. Am I covered? Boy. Um, so, I'm sitting on this porch, and I say, that, this land, you know, um, the ownership of this land the possession of this land is a vexed issue, isn't it, mate? And he'd say, you've already gone down the wrong path because you're using these words that don't work for me. Ownership, possession. So, well, how are we going to chat about this? And my feeling is, number one, um, we I'd, I'd have to change my language. And when my GM was chatting to me, I was thinking maybe... And this wouldn't work probably either, but I'll give it a shot right now. Maybe, hmm, maybe um, it's if I steered away from the word ownership and used a concept like exclusion rights, you know. So I've got a piece of land, you know, a small, humble piece of land somewhere in Essendon. Uh, you know, along with my wife, of course. Um, and I start to say, I don't own that land. Um, it's more a case that I'm standing in the middle of that land and I've got a gun. And if anyone tries to forcibly come onto that land, I'll shoot them. You know? So I, what I have is a power of exclusion over that piece of land. Now, I'll try and develop that. I might come up with a different phrase. But I think what I do with respect to that land is exercise a power of exclusion. I exercise power. Do Indigenous people have a concept of power? I'll just assume that, yes, they do. All right, for the moment. Now, this might get my friend on the porch and I chatting if I start thinking along these lines. I say, no, I, you know, I do not claim that I own that piece of land in Essendon, yeah, I might say that to him, um, I exercise a power of exclusion. Hmm. Much like, um, and I'll say to him, you know, your mob exercises a power of exclusion over the mob, the, the mob over the hill on the other side there. Uh, you don't say, you know, there's no sense that you own this land in a western style way all right granted i'll give you know I'll absolutely give you that i'll give you that um but you exercise a power of exclusion uh, on that land um, except where you invite another person from another mob onto that land to visit and then go home later Okay, and I do the same thing. In fact, we're sitting, uh, the indigenous guy and I are sitting on my porch in Essendon, right? Let's, let's assume for the moment, my porch. See, my ownership. All right, 
but I'll change the language on that and I'll, I'll say I've got this indigenous bloke and I've been exercising a power of exclusion on this quarter acre block that I live on uh, for quite a while along with my wife and I have um, even though that guy the indigenous guy he's Wurundjeri which is the tribe you know um, uh, the people the nation where you know within which Essendon sits, my whole suburb, you know. Um, so, he's a Wurundjeri guy, and before Europeans came along, he had a power of exclusion on my quarter acre block, and all the land around it, right? But, I came to Australia with a gun, and I stood in that quarter acre block, and I went, you know, loaded a bullet, into that um, into that gun and I said I am now going to exercise the power of exclusion over this quarter acre block at least over you it's not you know I'm not going to say it's not yours anymore I'm just saying I'm exercising a power of exclusion now you can still say that it is morally you know that you've got the moral power of exclusion over this but I've got the physical power of exclusion right now you can have the moral power of exclusion i've got the power of exclusion now. i've got the physical one my physical trumps your moral okay that sort of thing hmm. i think this idea has got legs uh you could probably you know that you're the listener you could probably develop this better than me and maybe throw it out at the end as well right and then the Wurundjeri guy says i'm not happy about that um I think moral should trump physical, you know? And I said, well, you know what? I've got kids to raise. I've got my wife here who'll kill me if I give this, give you power of exclusion on this land. She'll just kill me. Um, and she's a good person too, by the way. But, um, you know, it's very hard to be good in this world. Do you think you're a good listener? Yeah, it's very hard to be good. You're gonna have to hurt, hurt somebody. All right, anyway. And the indigenous guy says, no, moral trumps physical, you know, and he actually starts to get very firm on that point. And then I just go, chick, chick, I've still got the gun, you know, and that's that. And then off he goes, you know. All right. Now, but what have I done there? There's no ownership involved, you know, in my little sort of take on this at the moment. It's just a power of exclusion that I've um, exercised. Now, this reminds me of a no-fly zone. You know, now ownership of land in the Western sense it really does feel like you know you need something physical, but no-fly zones um, are very uh, in wartime, for example, um, and in times of geopolitical tension. That's like an exclusion, a power of exclusion being exercised as well. So what I'm exercising over the piece of land, the quarter acre block in Essendon, is not that different, is it not, to a, power, a, a no-fly zone in, a, um, in war. Um, and uh, is it? And also, um, no man's lands, you know, like the, the no man's land between North Korea and South Korea, 
Um, who owns that? Well, interestingly, I think nobody owns it, do they? It's just that there's this uh, joint power of exclusion being exercised over that land and nobody owns it. Now, I haven't checked the maps as to where the boundary border between North Korea and South Korea is. Is it right through the middle of that exclusion zone? Is it? I don't know. Let's just for a, imagine for a moment that North Korea extends all the way through, you know, technically they own the exclusion zone, um, the, um, the no man's land between North Korea and South Korea. Right, let's just imagine someone, and everyone agrees with this worldwide on the maps, that North Korea owns that land, you know, on the maps. But well, ownership means nothing there because they haven't got the power to actually use that land or even walk on it. So they don't, well, I'm, I'm, I've got, you know, they don't have the power of exclusion rights, you know. Okay. And no fly zones, you know, where there's a total blackout. Um, uh, same sort of thing, you know. So, look, if a country, you know, who owns the sky? Nobody owns the sky, right? Um, but who cares? You know, it's a moot. You know, it's, a, it's not even a question that can be discussed really easily. Point is, if someone's put up a military missile shield and stops you from passing through a certain section of the sky, um, they are exercising the power of exclusion on that portion of the sky. They don't own it so much. Um, you know, they can't put a flag in it, uh, I don't think, but they do. Now, imagine the, the US tomorrow puts up a system of battle satellites into space, you know, orbiting Earth. Um, when you say into space, it's still inside the atmosphere almost, I think. Um, I, space is a funny thing. Um, you know, uh, you sort of think you, you know, when, um, who is it? Um, Richard Branson, he says, we're going, we're going to organize space travel tours, you know. Um, he hardly gets off the ground, really, in the scheme of things. You know, if you, you know, compared to the size of the Earth, you just sort of, there's this technical moment where, you know, the air thins out just enough and people say, oh, well, let's, let's call that space. But anyway, let's say that, um, the US now puts up satellites with uh, machine guns on them, <laughs> you know what I mean, um, nukes, and nobody can send a rocket past those satellites, right? So they block off everyone's power to go beyond those satellites, all right? But they can go beyond there themselves. Do the US then suddenly own the rest of the universe? Do they own it? Well, I don't think the word own works really well, but they do, they are exercising a power of exclusion over the rest of the universe. So, the US is then suddenly exercising a power of exclusion over the moon, and over Mars, and over Venus, and over the rest of the universe. Everything, all the galaxies far, far away. They have that power of exclusion. So they've got a lot of power. 
do they have a moral power to do that? Well, probably not, but who cares, you know? Okay. Then the indigenous guy, you know, get back to Essendon again. He comes back to me later and he says, listen, mate, you know, I, I went off in a little bit, a little bit stressed last time uh, because you did upset me, you know. And you know what? I'm a horrible person. You know that from listening to these podcasts all the time. And I'll say, hey, come on, come and have a beer. Yeah. All right, let's chat again. And then we chat for the next six weeks. And then we chat for the next six months. And then we chat for the next six years. And um, and at the end of all that chatting, um, our family's become really good friends. And um, he's, you know, and he's got a certain power of exclusion, as it turns out, uh, down by the Yarra that um, I didn't even know about. Um, he doesn't own the land, but, um, you know, he's been chatting to the government and all that sort of The government said, listen, you've got free access to this area of the Yarra. Um, still Crown-owned land, but, you know, we're going to... You've got free access, you know, um, you know, something like that, you know what I mean? And, and not only that, you know, if, if give us a call if someone tries to, um, tries to come and, you know, if Yobbo's come down there and set up a caravan and a camp, um, give us a ring, we'll send the cops down there, we'll, we'll kick them off, you know. So, essentially, we'll give you a bit of power of exclusion over, you know, what used to be your hunting grounds, you tell us. I don't know whether, we can't prove that, but we're gonna, you know, just for once we're gonna be a nice government and I'll, we'll give you this uh, little stretch of land. Um, anyway, so he starts chatting to me about this little stretch of land he's got by the Yarra River. Um, you know, it's not in the best place in the Yarra River, it's up upstream a bit, you know, because all the best bits are already taken up by Crown Casino, you know, and Melbourne CBD and all that sort of stuff. Anyway. His family, you know, this is all fairy tale stuff, you know, it's not going to happen in real life. But we're just fleshing out the idea of power of exclusion. And, um, you know, and after we get chatting for a bit, you know, we might end up saying, I say, you know what, let's, um, let's timeshare this. <laughs> all right. So you get where I'm going with all of this, you know. Um, yeah, and, you know, no, it's not, you know, and why did I say that to you? Because, you know, I think his moral argument eventually got me to put my gun down a bit, you know. Um, so I take the bullets out of my gun and I sort of say, you know what, I'm, I was a bit of a bastard. Um, I don't expect this if you're listening, indigenous guy. I'm not actually going to do this. You know, I'm going to leave, leave my, my land to my kids. That's how evil I am. Um, but... Um, so is my wife, you know. Um, so, um, but you get where I'm going. You know, could not not that we're going to get anywhere, the indigenous guy and I. We're not going to achieve much. But can, my feeling is, are we at least discussing? You know, did we get to a point where we could at least chat using the same language? Um, you know, and this was almost a six-month-long chat just now, chatting about that, you know, um, but the point is, you know, I would say to the Indigenous guy, if this was actually me and him, and him and I, um, sitting on a porch just now, chatting for the last, you know, I've probably chatted for, what, 40 minutes now, because I know it's been all the way from Essendon to Box Hill in the car, um, uh, you know, um, are we at least chatting? We're not going to get anywhere, but is you know, but... 
even if we're not getting anywhere much, you know, other than, you know, I said, listen, come over and, you know, your kids can just hang in our backyard, whatever. And he says, you come over to my little spot on the Yarra and all that sort of stuff, because at least we understand each other, you know. Mm -hmm. Is that a step forward on um, the idea of him and I arguing about who owns what? When he just says, I don't accept you, even your concept of ownership, you know. He says, I don't even accept, and I say, I own this land, this quarter acre block. And he says, I don't, I don't understand, I refuse to understand your concept of ownership. You know, I refuse to acknowledge it. And I say, well, you've got to acknowledge it because I've got this gun, you know. And that, that discussion goes nowhere and we never really get on good terms at all, not even half good terms. But if he and I sat on a porch and talked about the nature of the power of exclusion, um, you know, and that can be, you know, you can exercise a power of exclusion on land, a little bit like Indigenous people used to do with each other. You know, he would understand, you know, that would be more, in clo more that would be closer to his way of language. And then we say, yeah, back in the ancient times, um, our mob used to exercise a power of exclusion over the next mob. Um, you know, we didn't really fight that much uh, because everyone knew know that this is our sort of hunting grounds and that's your hunting grounds you know so there was a power of exclusion there and if we found someone uninviting from another uninvited from another mob on the hunting grounds that you know we were exercising the power of exclusion over and we were we were and and the, you know forget about the reason we were exercising that power of exclusion but you know we you know firmly believed you know in our religion you know um, that that land had given birth to us you know we were that land, that land was us, and we were that land. So we weren't, it's not an ownership thing, the indigenous guy would say. We didn't have an ownership land or thing, but our mob was born out of that dirt, and we returned to that dirt. We are at one with that dirt, you know, and the trees and the animals in that area, and the other mob is not, was not born out of that dirt. Um, you know, that, that, you know, our ancient, um, our ancient, origin story said that we were born out of this dirt, you know, and they were born out of that dirt, so there's an understanding there, okay, it's not ownership, it's just, you know, does that tree there um, deserve, does that belong here, or does it belong, you know, on the other side of Australia, no, it belongs here, because the earth gave rise to that tree right there, you know, um, back in those days they didn't transplant, transplant large gum trees you know so you know we can do that these days probably with a big crane but um you get where i'm going so um now that was a bit rambling but somewhere in there was at least i think an opportunity for indigenous australians and european australians to at least chat you know to get to to get to second base i doubt that it would get us any further than that i doubt that it would you know, but at least we could start speaking the same language and, you know, appealing to something higher than just physical uh, powers of exclusion over land and start appear. And then we could start at least having a chat about moral, the moral um, angle on that, you know, and so on and so forth. interrupt myself there mid monologue because I just hopped in and listened to all of that 
and I have pinpointed this moment as being the moment where I finished off uh, chatting about what? That the challenge I set for myself to find a way in which um, Indigenous Australians and European Australians, maybe not these days, but let's say in 1788, a way in which Indigenous Australians and European Australians might have been able to discuss uh, access to land or, you know, who owns the land but not owns the land, you know, without using the word own to discuss how to how to look at the land, you know. Um, and the challenge I set myself was to find a way, you know, not to be nice about that, you know. As far as I was concerned, as I was setting myself that challenge, I think I was still quite happy for it all to break into open warfare. I wasn't trying to avoid that. I was trying to find language. The challenge I set for myself in that whole spiel then was to develop a an alternative language, a language alternative to the language of we own this place, you know, the Europeans, Australians saying that, and then Indigenous people saying ownership makes no sense to us. And then the Europeans saying, yes, but we own this place. And then the Indigenous people saying... That makes no sense to us. And then the Europeans saying, yet we do own it. And the indigenous people saying, we don't know what the hell you're talking about, right? So that's the sort of discussion that will go nowhere, which, you know, will probably break into open warfare and, you know, the guns come out and the spears come out and then there's deaths, you know. Now, I wasn't trying to avoid the, the, the weapons coming out and the deaths. The terms of reference I set for myself in that challenge had nothing to do with um, uh, making, making things better. I just wanted to find some new language. You know, that was a challenge. You know, you, you, well, you might, as you were listening to that, depending on who you are, you might have been getting annoyed just listening to me. You might have been saying, you are being incredibly insensitive, sporty, as you're speaking. To which I would say I wasn't trying to not be insensitive. I wasn't trying to not be insensitive. You said three negatives. Right, you know what I mean. You know? And you might be a Jewish guy listening to this. A Jewish person listening to that just now. And I was anti-Semitic during that spiel. There's a very strong anti-Semitic bit in the middle of it. I remember that, all right? You know, and someone might come up to me and say, listen, it was very insensitive of you and very anti-Semitic to use uh, the example of Abraham stealing Canaan, you know, um, the promised land, stealing the promised land, you know, that was anti-Semitic, you know, to which I would say I wasn't trying to not be anti-Semitic. You know, that wasn't part of the terms of reference. The terms of reference were to simply to try and develop an alternative language, you know. It was an exercise by a Martian, you know. You know, you might say you shouldn't be anti-Semitic. 
Why would an earthling say that to a Martian who is just trying to do a language exercise, you know, a way of speaking? All right, that's where I'm coming from. And you might be um, an indigenous person who was just listening to all of that, saying that was really um, disturbing. You know, that's the sort of language they use today on uh, social media. You know, you go straight to, I'm, I'm shocked, dismayed, disturbed you know you go straight to the big language such that if something really shocking and dismaying and disturbing comes along you've run out of adjectives <laughs> i really feel that you know i feel people are doing that at the moment they go straight for the big guns and i don't know what they do when they come across something that's even more disturbing and they've used up all their adge actually I, adjectives I, I actually do know what they do they say I, i've seen this you know i haven't been on social media for years but i remember this one no words. There are no words. Um, you know, because all the because what happens on social media is people use up all the words. You know, they um, they um, they they fire off all their arrows. You know, imagine they're in a war. They fire off all their arrows at moderate and minor points, and such that when a big point comes along, they say there are no words. You know. In other words, you do the work trying to guess what I'm trying to think. <laughs> and I sort of think, you've left yourself no words there. <laughs> that was your fault. <laughs> you know, you should have used more moderate language earlier and then you still would have had shocked, dismayed, outraged and, um, and disturbed, you know. <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, what I was saying is... Um, you know, you may have been shocked, dismayed and disturbed um, whilst listening to my thing and, and just hating me, you know. But I wasn't trying to be not hated. I was just trying to um, find an alternative, a word, a way of looking at land that was not, you that didn't use the word own, you know, own. That's what I was trying to do. Um, so, no matter what you thought of all of that as you were listening to it, no matter what you thought of me, uh, oh, um, the only thing that concerned me was um, meeting that challenge as best I can, you know. Now, you know, I obviously could have reached for even worse examples, um, but those, the ones I used, the anti-Semitic one against the Jews and, you know, the frankly sort of um, insensitive way that I was saying, you know, that, you know, just assumed I had the gun in that example. I don't know if you remember that example, but there was an example where I was sitting with an Indigenous guy and I had a gun and he didn't. You know, and you might say, you know, oh, that's very insensitive. Why didn't you give him a gun and you have no gun, you know? And the answer is because I, I wasn't trying to be nice. I actually wasn't trying to be nice. That wasn't within the terms of reference, you know. Um, the terms of reference were just trying to um, cut through and, um, and find an alternative way of looking at the land, you know, as clearly as I could, you know. And to a certain extent, you know, the terms of reference dictate the outcome. All right, let's see. The terms of reference dictate the outcome of, you know, a discussion like the one I had. 
and the terms of reference did not include being sensitive and, you know, not insulting anybody and all that sort of thing. Um, you know, so it's not that exercise I just did then is not possible in the public domain. Imagine if I was on the on the Q and A program uh, on the ABC, you know, nationally televised, and a panel there ready to jump on me if. I go too far left or too far right, you know, so you've got audience members in there and the whole thing is set up um, to try and um, upset the two ends. You know, that's the way that program, I think, is set up, you know. Um, they try and get people on there so that, you know, they've got an audience where there's left-wingers and right-wingers, let's say, and they... And they, you know, they set things up so that to get one side angry than the other, or just one side, you know. So if I was on there, you know, um, I couldn't have what I call a Martian, um, a Martian investigation into uh, that which I was trying to investigate. Being, is there another way? For an indigenous person and uh, a European person to discuss land, you know, a way that doesn't involve the word own. That's all I cared about. And I did not care about whether I insulted anybody. Quite clearly, you know. Uh, look, I did a little bit because I could have gone worse. Um, but, you know, I'll stay this side of atrocious if... You know, if I've got a choice between between being atrocious and not being atrocious, you know, I'll be not being, I won't, you know, I'm not going to be atrocious just for the sake of it. But if I think of a good example, that is an insult to someone. For example, the Jews, as I just, you know, I was insulting the Jews earlier. Um, if I think that example, you know, if I'm focused on what I'm trying to achieve, you know, the challenge, you know, and a good example jumps into my head, I'll use it on this podcast, but if I'm on Q&A uh, on the ABC TV in public, in the public domain, um, you know, where there's going to be screaming, if I use such an example, then I will use, you know, I will fish around and go, um, and I'll go, ah, and I'll think of a much less biting um, example than the one I used and my point will stay wishy-washy and I will meet my challenge in a much more milk soppy way you know but that's but this podcast is about going bang and trying to you know going for a challenge a little bit like you know uh, in the Olympics 100 meter dash just dash straight at the line yeah to a certain extent that's what I was doing all right now, I kept talking after that little bit, but that was the end of that bit, you know what I mean, where I was talking about the different, you know, Indigenous and Australian, Australian, you know what I mean by Australian, European Australian, because, you know, if I was an Indigenous person, I wouldn't call myself an Australian. I just wouldn't. I'd call myself whatever I was, Wurundjeri or something, you know. Australia, the idea of Australia, as defined in the Constitution, is a European sort of constitutional construct, you know, it's a European political system. So when I say Australian, I often mean European Australian. Um, and I see Indigenous peoples as being whatever they are, Yorta, Yorta, Wurundjeri, whatever, you know what I mean? 
All right, so that's that. Okay. Um, and look, I'll put, do another whole another whole episode because I am actually keyed into the idea of trying to make one sort of culture out of the two in par you know two cultures in parallel indigenous australia you know this is when i if i were moral and in another podcast and in my personal life i am much more moral and you know uh, but not on this podcast i'm not but you know in another sphere um yes um you know uh, i am i do think along the lines of what's not divisive you know is there a way that these two cultures can come together that they can live in parallel with each other you know, indigenous rights on the one hand and European rights on the other hand. Is there a way to do that? Which is not very, which is pretty much not the conservative viewpoint. You know, I think the conservative viewpoint in Australia is to have one set of laws and everyone follow those laws, you know, which would have the effect of indigenous, um, uh, indigenous law not existing. You know what I mean? I think that's you know, and everyone's you know, and uh, there's a uh, Andrew Bolt is a um, a conservative commentator in the Herald Sun, and he takes it as self evidently true and factual and right that unity is the thing. Unity under Australian law. Forget the tribes. Get rid of the tribes. Everybody follows the same law. You know, including the laws of land ownership. You know, and um, if anything disagrees with that, he says you are going for disunity. You know what I mean? And to a certain extent, he's right. I am going for disunity, not that sort of unity. You know what I mean? I would like, and I know it's airy-fairy and probably not possible, but I would like um, to see if we could just chat for about 150 years um, to see if there's a way that Indigenous people could... Um, have an attachment to land that is that has nothing to do with the ownership model, right? Which immediately Andrew Bolt would jump all over because he's, he would say, oh, that's a separate law, that's a special law, you know what I mean? Two different laws on the same land. I'm saying, yeah. You know, that's what I'm sort of thinking, you know, I'm saying, yeah. I wonder if there's a way. And Andrew Bolt says, it's disunity, throw it out, you know. And he'd write an article on it, you know if I mattered, which I don't. Uh, but I'm saying, well, you know, I wouldn't mind chatting about it, which is what I'm doing here in this podcast. Maybe I'm not such a bad guy at all. Yes, you are. No, you're not. All right. Uh, now, I kept chatting after, after that and got back to the Western idea of ownership. And I will now... Uh, go back to my little theme music here and um, I have finished talking about what I was talking about you know the alternative way of looking at ownership except not ownership uh, the alternative way of looking at land an indigenous guy and a European both s sitting together on a porch looking at a piece of land and trying to discuss that piece of land in a way where they're both speaking the same language, you know. And I don't think Andrew Bolt could do that with an Indigenous guy. I don't think he could. He would just say, listen, I insist on you using my definition. I think he would. All right. I think he would. All right. Theme music and then back to the Western idea of ownership of land. Coming up. Coming up. Now. <laughs>
Now, someone was, that professor was explaining to me that possession of land, you know, um, actually happens in stages. Um, there's, now, now, this might be worth listening to um, because I didn't come up with it, all right? But he said, there's, there's first, you know, our Western idea of ownership of land is step one, claim the land. Step two, physically occupy the land. And step three, start to morally feel like it's yours, right? So there's three stages there. And only after those three stages do we Westerners feel like we own that land, right? So I'll switch back to ownership, the Western idea of ownership, you know? Whereas I don't know much about indigenous culture, but they don't have those three steps as far as I can see. They have more like one step, which is this land gave rise to us just like this land gave rise to that gum tree over there. We are part of this land in the same way that gum tree is part of that land. You know, something like that. So in Western culture, we have to go through those three steps. And let's take the Jews, for example. No, the Israelites. Were they called Jews back then? Um, you know, the Semites that came out of, you know, Abraham coming from Ur, you know, seeking the promised land, you know, going to Canaan, which was going to be his promised land. Um, let's imagine him for a minute. Now, he's got more the Western idea, or, you know, the idea that people who come from an agriculture background, um, you know, what the Greeks called civilization, they invented the word, you know, um, so go with their meaning of the word. If you invent a word, you're allowed to define it. All right. Now, civilization. Um, and first, Abraham, look, he was probably mythical and legendary. Uh, but just imagine he existed, okay, for the purposes of this. And imagine, too, that the Bible was written back then, too, in advance, because, um, okay, and it wasn't. Everyone, even, you know, Jewish scholars agree with that. The Bible was written a lot later, you know. Um, just like the Odyssey and the Iliad were written a lot later than when people started reciting those poems, you know, in their oral, in the, the oral history of the Greeks, you know. All right. Now, um, so, um, Abraham went through those three steps. First, he claimed the land, right? God has promised us. So legally, he is claiming it. He's claiming it legally. You know, God, you know, um, the Bible is sort of legislation, really. Next thing, it took a while, but eventually, oh, and I think... Even before Abraham possessed the land, I think he claimed the moral ownership at the same time. So he did two steps at once. God has promised us this land, so we claim the land and morally it's ours. And then eventually, um, the Israelites finally managed to occupy it as well. And then the deal was sealed and it was theirs, okay? And they kicked all the Canaanites off. Or they... Um, they, you know, they lived there and the Canaanites were, you know, the original Canaanites were um, aliens on what was previously their land. Now, that's the Western style of ownership. Right, now, 
did we do the same thing here in Australia? You know, were we reading from the Bible? Was the Bible our legislation? You know, sort of. You know what I mean? I think it was. And we got um, both. Um, you know, we we got um, uh, legitimacy from the Bible and also from our laws. You know, because Western society derives its laws from. Judeo and classical ideas, you know. Um, okay, so all the original Australian, you know, European Australians coming into here, you know, they were Christians. Um, so first they claimed the land, tick, you know, because, you know, Captain Cook came and put a flag in it, you know. That's the claim. But I don't think they felt they morally owned it yet. Um, and I don't think, and definitely they didn't occupy it, right? So there was just this sort of vague claim but it was a kind of ambit claim, really. You know, it wasn't as strong as Abraham's claim on the Canaan. On Canaan, uh, it was nowhere near that. I, I discussed Captain Cook in another episode. It was just a wishful thinking sort of. Um, look, we claim this, all this, all this land. You know, put one flag in, tiny little flag. You know, um, in one little, you know, one square inch of all of this land, and we use that to claim the entire thing. You know, or at least the eastern half. The Dutch can, the Dutch seem to have claimed the western half, so we'll claim the eastern half at least. And hopefully, the Dutch, you know, will just, you know, maybe we'll just take the western half later if the Dutch aren't watching. You know, something like that. Okay, so we made a claim. Are we doing the same thing as Abraham did? And if so, are we doing the wrong thing? And if we are doing the wrong thing, well, you go over. You, you know, you go and. Um, tell uh go and meet one of your jewish friends and tell them they did the wrong thing taking israel you know and you're up for a fight too okay so if you want to tell me that european australians did the wrong thing coming to australia you have to actually go and face the jews um and tell them they did the wrong thing going to israel and they don't own it and you're in for a fight fella. you're in for a fight okay and you're in not only in you're in for a moral fight you ain't gonna win you ain't gonna win. <laughs> um, they'll get. They'll get you. Um, you won't win that one, right? But you know, let's go back to Australia. All right. So we claimed the land, and then we occupied a small portion of that land that we claimed. Okay, we occupied well, just a small colony, and then we started to spread into the rest of the land that we had claimed which included New Zealand, you know, because New Zealand and Australia were all the one colony, the one country, as far as European Australians are concerned. Because, you know, New Zealand is part of New South Wales back at this time in, in Australia's, Australia's history. New Zealand only split off later. Um, okay, so New Zealand and, well, New South Wales, you know, which was New Zealand, modern New Zealand and Australia, all one country, you know. Um, and okay so there's the occupation and then pretty quickly we started to morally feel that we um, owned the, we possessed the land um, because if indigenous people came onto land we had staked out with fences and started shooting our sheep we actually got genuinely morally outraged now the minute an indigenous person walks onto a piece of land upon which you're, you know, um, you have staked a claim and occupied. 
and if an indigenous person comes on there and you you actually feel that anger like it's got to be proper moral anger when you feel that anger you started to exercise a moral claim over the land tick 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 under a western system you own that land now an indigenous person can then come along and say listen morally you don't own that land but sorry indigenous person you're too late in the heart of that European and in the mind of that European he does own that land morally you know that's the Western idea and this is why people can't discuss things you know because especially activist progressive Westerners go up to a Westerner and say you don't own that land and they're just blind in my opinion you know the willfully ignoring the fact that that person morally does own that land in his head you know and they're not approaching it the right way you know look they're never going to get anywhere anyway yes i agree they're never going to get anywhere anyway no one's going to kick me off my quarter acre i i can morally accept that that Wurundjeri guy um does have the right to walk on what I call my property. But you know what? I'm gonna call the cops. Now, if you're a progressive and you're listening to this and you're thinking I'm a bastard, and if you happen to own land, if you wake up tomorrow, you know, in the Western sense, because a lot of progressives own their own land, you know, um, a lot of beautiful progressive thinkers own their own land. Right, if you wake up tomorrow morning and there's a mob of indigenous people actually camped in your room, uh, your, your backyard, and your kids go out to play, and, and there's, there's some indigenous, a whole indigenous mob just camped there, are you gonna smile and just say, just relax guys, we'll move on? Are you going to do that? All right, this is why I sort of think, I often say I'm a bastard, but I slightly suspect that just about everyone else is a bastard too, they're full of talk but no action, and at least I'm admitting I'm a bastard. Now, there might be people who would move on and just say, mm, there you go, you know, I'm still paying the mortgage on this, but you know, you have it, I'll move on, and um, I'll move on, and good luck to you, because yes, you're a Wurundjeri tribe. Um, kids, in the car, we're gonna go and find somewhere else to live, because, you know, morally, this guy owns this land. How progressive are you, listener? Right Now, if you don't own land, you're probably saying to yourself, yes, of course I would. But I would sort of complain, I, I would sort of say, it's very easy to say that if you don't own land. You know, everyone who hasn't got something tends to be a lot more socialist, as it were, and free. Um, you know, people who, people who have got nothing in the West. In Westerners who have got nothing um, are in are much more motivated to say what they would do if they had something, you know. Um, I feel, you know, that's all very well and easy for me to say because I happen to have land, but um, I feel that's the case. What I'd like to do, I really would like um, such a person to win Tetzalotto and buy a piece of land and then just ask him the question again. All right then, that'll do for this section of the episode. That was part three.
and part four. This is going to be the longest podcast I've ever done, longest episode I've ever done, because I still have to get to Captain W.E. Johns, which is the fourth quarter in this game that I'm playing of four quarters, and uh, and in that I'll be discussing a book called Biggles Takes a Holiday, in which I really uncover the truth on what bastards, you know, we, we European Australians and British, you know, we British are. You know, because I want to get that out in the open. It's going to be a very uncomfortable listen, but I'm going to get it out in the open because I've been reading Biggles Takes a Holiday again. Um, I, I read it when I was a kid, and I've, I'm reading it now as a 56-year-old, and I'm three quarters of the way through. And my God, was I listen? You know, I don't remember all that stuff. You know, all the talk of gollywogs and all that sort of stuff. It's unbelievable, and it goes far far worse than just calling native South Americans gollywogs. Um, that'll be the last part of this long, long episode.